Chapel, Mason City. Philemon, verses 1 through 25, that's the whole book. All right, the book of Philemon, I've entitled this message Second Chances, you'll see why. During the NFL offseason, two men in the Denver Broncos front office were convicted of DUIs. Team president John Elway suspended both of them, but he did not fire them. When asked why Tom Heckert and Matt Russell were not fired, Elway replied, heck, I've made a lot of poor decisions too. I believe in second chances. We serve a God of second chances. And in reality, it's like second, third, fourth, fifth. Yeah, keep them coming. Lord, I need them all. In today's passage, we see a guy pleading for another guy to receive a second chance, for him to be reconciled with someone that he has wronged. Now, in this, we learn how God is able to offer second chances to us. Have you ever wondered that, really? How is God able to offer forgiveness to people that do awful things? You know, and I will tell you, the unbelieving world that doesn't know Christ, they stumble with that. They say, you can do all these terrible things your whole life and God can just forgive you. Have you ever wondered that, how he can do that? Being just? Now, interestingly enough, the main point of this letter doesn't just jump off the page for everybody. There's a good moral to the story in this. There's a good moral story in here, but there's something deeper going on. In fact, when you've read Philemon, you might even wonder, why did God even allow this book to be in the Bible? Because it's pretty interesting. It's kind of unlike any other letter. So what I'm going to do is take us verse by verse through it and then, you know, for a few minutes and then we'll come around and we'll have a second look at the end. And I'm going to show you some things that I think will just move your heart about who God is and how he operates. Okay, so the outline is very simple today. It's three parts. One, two, three. See them right there. The introduction, the plea for Onesimus. Hey, that's a good baby name. Anybody going to have a baby? Uh, you know, I've been thinking that, that'd be an okay one. Onesimus. That's pretty cool. You know, a lot of them in the Bible are crazy, you know, like uh, Aristarchus, I don't know, you know, if I name it that, but Onesimus is pretty cool. And then number three, verse 23 and 25, that's the closing of the letter. Starting in the beginning, verse one, let's get into the word of God. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. And before we go any further, let's ask the Lord to bless our time here, okay? Father, thank you for your word. And we do praise you for it. And we thank you for all the lives that have gone to preserve it to where we can have it here today. Lord, in this word, there is life. And so open it to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. All right. Paul. Now, Paul there, you see that word. This is the one-time persecutor of the church, converted, got saved, planted many churches, wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. Some people say 14. Do you know why? Some people thought maybe he wrote Hebrews, but actually nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. 
God is the God of second chances, right? And it starts just from the very first name in the letter of Philemon. This is a man that was a violent persecutor that became one of the greatest propagators of the gospel. And it says that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, that's an interesting thing, right? What a perspective that is, because he was actually a prisoner of Rome, wasn't he? Absolutely. But Paul chooses to see it as he was there by the sovereign hand of God. There's a key to life right away in this letter. If I look at my circumstances and I think that I'm a victim of circumstances, my life's going to be miserable. But if I look at my life and I see that I am somewhere in God's sovereign plan, I'm going to have a whole different life, aren't I? So Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, two letters written to Timothy, first and second Timothy. That's not two brothers. That's written to the one guy named Timothy. Little Bible joke there. Sorry. That one's pretty well worn out at this point. Says he's writing to Philemon. Now, this is a member of the Colossian church. Remember, we just read Colossians, and I asked, you know, we're going to go to Philemon next. Who, who can figure out why? Well, this is why. Philemon uh, was a member of the Colossian church. Apparently, he was a wealthy man, and the church met in his house. Now, church buildings didn't show up until the third century, about 250 AD. Early Christianity, church met sometimes in the synagogue in Jerusalem and the outer courts, but it met in houses. Uh, it gives you kind of a glimpse into early church. <clears throat> and he says uh, to Aphia and Archippus, Aphia is uh, likely Philemon's wife and Archippus most likely his son. Then it says that he's a fellow soldier. Now I like that because it lets us know that serving in ministry in those days particularly and in some places today is dangerous work. And that was certainly the case for Archippus, and he calls him a fellow soldier. He says, to the church in your house. Interesting that Paul wants this personal letter to this guy Philemon to be read in the church uh, in his house. There's a couple of reasons for it, I believe. One is that it holds Philemon accountable to do what's in the letter. And also, uh, it teaches believers about forgiveness, which we're going to see in this letter. Here's the greeting, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the Trinity, God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we always um, you know, understand that God is a Trinity, Holy Spirit, Father, Son. And uh, here we have uh, two of the members of the Trinity showing up in the greeting, where he says, grace and peace. Now, Paul always introduced his letters with these two words, and they're always in that order. In order to have peace with God, I first must be a partaker of the grace of God. Salvation comes by grace through faith, not by doing works, not by being very religious, not by doing, you know, rituals. I would never have peace in my life if salvation came by works. Guess why? I can't do the works. I mean, I can for a little bit. I mean, I can be a good guy for, you know, maybe an hour or so. And that's all of us, if we're honest. So I will never have the peace of God in my heart unless I first understand the grace of God. Unless I first understand that salvation comes as a gift to a sinner that can't get it right. Unless I understand that and have that in my heart, I will never have the peace of God in my heart. I'm thinking of this song right now. I've got the peace of God that passes understanding down in my heart. Down in my heart. Down in my heart. You'll never have that until you reproach God based on his grace. 
You got to turn away from looking at yourself and your works and your failings and your miserable track record and all that stuff. You got to turn away from looking at that and look directly at Jesus and what he did and receive his gift of grace. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and he lives in your heart and he gives you the peace of God that passes understanding. Now, Here's a section called the Thanksgiving section. This is typical in Paul's letters. They start out with the greeting and then they go to the Thanksgiving section. All of the letters that Paul wrote virtually have the Thanksgiving section except for one. Does anybody know what it is? It's the book of Galatians because Paul is essentially reprimanding the Galatians. He's not really very thankful because they have turned from the simplicity of the gospel back into works-based righteousness. So that's a little aside for Bible uh, nerds here. So he says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. He starts off saying, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Paul had an established prayer life. And I like it here because he just says he makes mention of Philemon. He loves Philemon and cares for him, but he mentions him in his prayers. Right? He just... He says, you know, while he's praying, God, I just want to mention Philemon, you know. He doesn't have to get into a half-hour prayer meeting for every single person that he loves and cares for all the time. He acknowledges Philemon in his prayer. And why is he so stoked? Because he's hearing of your love and faith. Notice that there. So Philemon is a genuine Christian whose love for his brothers and sisters reflects that fact. As he's saying, I, I think about you when I'm praying, um, hearing of your love and your faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the church, all the saints. In other words, the love that Christ has poured out in your heart, you're pouring that out uh, to the church. That's what the word saints means. It's just another way of saying the church. It's not like the um, you know, Catholics have made the saints uh, out of humans, like they, uh, you know, they call different humans saints. That's not what that word's talking about. That word's just talking about the church in general. Right. It just means people that are set apart. That's all the word means. Now, verse 6 says that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ. Now, in Christ Jesus. Now, the idea is, is that Paul wants Philemon's actions to be shared with the church. You see where he talks about sharing of your faith may become effective? He's talking about what he's going to ask Philemon to do. He wants Philemon to do it in such a way that it shares with the church. Like he wants the church to see what he's up to, right? And that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ. In other words, Philemon, what I want you to do is, it's coming up, but this thing that I want you to do, I want you to share it with the whole church because of every good thing that's in you, I want people to see that Christ has affected your life in such a way that you're willing to live it out. That's what he's saying in a wordy way. Paul's pretty wordy. He's a smart, he's a brilliant dude. He can write a sentence that's like two miles long. Verse 7 says, For we have great joy and consolation in your love, 
because the hearts, now that's not the typical word for hearts, cardia. It's not the typical words for here. It's the, it's the word that has to do with bowels, right? Because in that culture, they believed that the seat of the human emotions, the deepest part of a human was in their bowels. And so that's what he's saying there. We have great joy and consolation in your love because the bowels, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Now, this is what a Christian does. They refresh the hearts of others, right? Why do they do that? Well, because that's what Jesus does for us, right? Before I came to Christ, I was stale, you know? I was stale. I was depressed. I was lazy. I was smoking weed, you know, and I was just stuck in like a coma, you know, and just stale, People say, how's your day going? I'm like, blah, blah, blah. you know, and my couch has got this like dip in it, you know, and I'm like, oh, weed doesn't hurt anybody, bro. Like, no, you've just been sitting there for like 15 years. It doesn't do anything. Jeez. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you refreshment. There are a lot of people that are stale for all kinds of different reasons. Bitterness unforgiveness. They're mad at their parents because they didn't get what they should have got from them when they were growing up and they're still blaming them in their adult years. There's all kinds of reasons that people need to be refreshed. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, right? They're just walking as if there is no God. They haven't surrendered to God. They haven't received this freshness. They haven't received this new life in Christ. And that's what he offers. That's what Jesus offers. And so therefore Philemon, he turns around because he's partaken of the freshness and he offers it to others. And Paul's commending him for that. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Men in the church, this is a goal. You want to become a brother that refreshes the hearts of others, man. And not just men. Women too, everybody, you know, wants, this is a goal for all of us. It's for, for somebody to say that about us, right? And they do. And they do. I love coming here because I get refreshed by you people. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, now... Because Christ refreshes the hearts of sinners, sinners can do the same thing for others. And that's a key point. I just repeat it because that's a key point here. So Paul starts off this greeting, uh, greeting Philemon and the others. This is followed by Thanksgiving section, acknowledging his faith, the fact that he's faithfully loved and refreshed the hearts of the church. So now what happens in this next longer section is this. Paul makes an appeal to Philemon. He wants him to do something. He wants him to give a particular guy named Onesimus a second chance. You see, Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. In this day, in the Roman Empire, about 50% of the population were slaves. It was a common way to make a living. You could sell yourself into slavery. It was millions upon millions of people in slavery. And that's the dynamic here, is Philemon was the owner Onesimus, the, ma uh, the slave. And so that's the dynamic. Now, what's going to happen here is Paul is going to ask Philemon to receive Onesimus back because Onesimus stole a bunch of money, apparently, and took off and went to Rome and tried to escape. He runs into Paul while Paul's in jail. He gets saved. And then Paul says, you got to go back. You got to go make it right. 
But then he writes a letter to Philemon and he says, I want you to receive this guy, not as a slave, not, not in that old relationship. I want you to receive him as a brother. It's a beautiful letter. So Paul writes to Philemon and he says, I want you to give this guy another chance. I want you to forgive him. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you, verse 8, what is fitting? Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. So right in verse 8 there, Paul is saying to him, look, I, Paul's like, I'm an apostle. Now, the apostles have authority in the early church, right? They they uh, were, you know, they hung out with Jesus. They saw Jesus. They're the foundation of the church. And what Paul is saying, that's some small writing. Can you read that back there? Abraham, you got that? You can see it? Okay, good. Boy, good eyes back there. What he is saying right here is, I could command you to do this, to do what is fitting, but yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you, right? Now, this is something that the Lord teaches. He says, you know, the Gentiles... That's a word for people that don't know God. He says they lord their leadership over people. They're barking orders at people. They're commanding them to do stuff all the time. You're like, yeah, I've had a boss like that. Well, this guy here, Paul says, you know what? Because I'm concerned about the relationship, for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you than, rather than command you to do this. He doesn't want to flex his muscles. Now, that is a great leadership principle. By the way, if you are in any sort of position of authority, it's way better to appeal to people rather than to command them to do things. If you are in a marriage, it is way better for you to appeal to people for love's sake than it is to command them to do things. If you command your wife to do something or you command your husband to do something, you have killed intimacy in your relationship. That will affect your bedroom life. Maybe your bedroom life's all screwed up right now. That could be because you've been commanding one another to do things. Because, I mean, there's nothing more romantic than that, right? You must do this because you're my husband. Oh, yeah, yeah, come here and kiss me. You know? <laughs> come on, no. That's not how love works. He appeals to him for love's sake because he values the relationship, right? He goes on to say, being such, as, uh, such a one as Paul the aged... And now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's appealing to him. He's like, I'm appealing to you for love's sake. I'm old. <laughs> I'm locked up in jail. Have mercy, please. You know, I'm an old man. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. That means that he came to faith through Paul while he was in jail with him. He's begotten him. He says, he was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. This is a really neat play on words right here. Do you know what the word Onesimus means? Useful. 
And so it's a neat play on words right there because he says he was useless to you, but now he's useful and he's like, uh, that's a good thing. You know, by the way, doesn't Jesus do that with people? He takes some people that are just useless, turns them into somebody useful, you know? I mean, it's amazing how he can do that. You know, so many people walking in this world absolutely useless to the creator that made them, you know? The God who fashioned them, that gave them life. They haven't done a thing for him. And he turns them uh, into being useful. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. He goes, I'm sending him back, yet therefore receive him. That is my own heart. Wait a minute, Paul. This guy like ripped me off. He totally took advantage of me, stole my money. And now you're telling me just take him back and forget, you know, okay. Give him another chance. He says, I wish to keep him with me that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. He says, I, I'd like to just keep him here with me. But I'm not going to do that because, you know, he belongs to you. It's, it, you have rightful ownership on this dude's life. So I'm going to send him back to you, even though I, I want him to stay here. But I'll send him back. Uh, you know, if you want to send him to me, you can. Verse 14, but without your consent, I wanted to do anything. I didn't want to just keep the guy here and have him working for me, serving. Send him back to you. And then look at this beautiful line at the end of verse 14. Look at verse 14. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, but as it were, but voluntary. Now think about that statement for a second. People think that being a Christian, because there's a spiritual implication to this sentence right here, okay? People think that being a Christian is some compulsory thing, that you're being forced to serve, forced to attend church, forced to give, right? Some people think of Christianity like that. Some people have been brought up in a house like that, you know, where they've been forced and they've never been explained the motive of the gospel. They've never been explained, for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. They don't get that. So it's all this fear-based thing. They're doing it because somebody else is forcing them to do it. They don't understand. But this Statement right here. Look at what Paul says. I, without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. You see, God is looking for a love relationship with people. God doesn't want only your hands. He wants your heart. Now, it's possible to give God your hands, but not your heart. There are a lot of people that are in a lot of relationships like that today. They're just showing up, but their heart's not into it. Right? That's not what God wants. So in order for God to have a real love relationship with you, he can't force you. That's why he gives you free will. If you want to go live for things of the world rather than live for God, he allows you to do it. You're going to figure out that's empty really quick. Relationships, money, sex, drugs, TV, video games. Those things might not be bad in themselves. Drugs probably are, <laughs> you know. But some of those things aren't bad in themselves. But when you live for them, you find out that they're empty, right? But God gives you the free will to go choose that kind of life. So you will just come to the place where you go, you know, this is empty. I would rather have a love relationship with Jesus than have all the filet mignon that I could eat, you know? I mean, I got filet mignon coming out of my nostrils, you know? I got meat coming out of my nostrils here and it's just not enough, you know? I, I watched every single episode of Full House and I can't get enough, What's the problem? You're meant for a relationship with God. And he gives you the free will, though, to go, you know, wander around, choose all this other garbage, you know, you figure out it's empty. God gives you the free will because he wants your choice to be a real choice. 
listen, if you come to church here and, and you're doing it because you're, you know, it's compulsory and you're, you're doing it out of fear, you're doing something, I think you should check your motive and get real with the Lord. Ask the Lord if, if you know, between you and him, is he worth it to do the things that he commands? Do you want a love relationship with him? That's what he wants. Now, there are consequences, of course, for, for regarding, you know, disregarding God's offer of salvation. You will end up going to the destiny that God has planned for the devil and his angels. That's what hell is. Hell was created as the destination for the devil and his angels. But people that side with the devil by living in sin end up there. God in his grace has told you about that, so you won't end up there. But God in his love will allow you to have the free will to end up there if that's where you want to end up. You don't have to. You can turn yourself to Jesus willingly, and you can escape that. Also another tremendous marriage verse, isn't it? You know, I like it when you do stuff. I love it when my wife does stuff for me, but, you know... I want it to be voluntary. I don't want anything to be compulsory. I don't want anything to be forced in my marriage, ever. It's a great example of how love works. It appeals. It doesn't force. Verse 15, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. I just love that because he says, you know, maybe this whole thing happened for a reason. Maybe this whole bad thing happened for a good reason. Doesn't God do stuff like that? Amen, right? God, this bad, something bad happens and you find out later, you're like, you know, there was something good that came out of this. That's what God likes to do. That's what Paul's saying there. For perhaps he departed for a while... So you would come get saved. Isn't his salvation worth more than the, that he ripped you off a little bit, brother? Yeah, I think it is. Verse 17. If you then count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. It's not a forgery, in other words. I will repay not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides, oh, I won't mention that. <laughs> not to mention you owe me your life, Philemon. Not, not going to mention that. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. This is Paul's intercession for Onesimus here. You've refreshed the hearts of the church, now refresh mine by forgiving this young man and giving him a second chance. It can be really hard to forgive people, especially when they have done something legitimately evil to you. Paul knows it is possible because Philemon has received the grace and the peace of God. He knows that he's a genuine Christian, so he knows forgiveness is possible. And he's exhorting him to it. Sometimes we need to be exhorted to forgive. And we need to say, you know, and then we kick back and say, it's impossible, I can't do it. And it's, the response is, I know you can't do it in your own strength, but you can ask God to do this miraculous work of forgiveness and refreshment in you to let it go. Look at those verses there, 17 and 18. If you then count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Let's just 
take, let's just take a bath in that for a second. You know, let's soak in that. Think about those words. Receive him just as you would me. You've got this leader in the early church willing to identify himself with this criminal. Take him back. When you look at him, see me. If he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. I was reading the story about this guy that was uh, Alpharetta, Georgia, was where this took place. I can't remember his name right offhand, forgive me, but this guy went to prison, and uh, he got out of prison, and he, he did his time, but he had all these court costs, right? And he just could not pay these things, $4,500 worth of court costs, and so he literally kept going back to jail over it. One day, there just happened to be this guy in the lobby that overheard something about it, and he goes in that day while the guy's in court, and he pays all $4,500 off of it so this guy can get, like, this new start. Whatever he owes you, I'll pay it. So why in the world would somebody do something like that? To give him a second chance. He wants to refresh his heart. That's what Paul's saying here. If he owes you anything, put it on me. Put it on my account. I want you to grab a hold of this. And don't forget this because we're going to talk about this at the end here. Paul's confidence in Philemon's obedience, verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. I just love Paul. He's quite the salesman. You know, you know, Philemon, I know you're going to do what I ask you to, and even more so because you're a solid, real Christian, man. You know, so you're going to abound in grace, right? That's what they call the presumptive close for those of you that are in sales. You know, should I send the pen to your house? <laughs> yeah, I know that you're going to do it and then some because you're a genuine Christian. You've got the love of God in you. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Well, I know you've been praying for me to get released, and so I'm going to come stay with you, so get the bed ready. <laughs> Love it. Love the Apostle Paul. That's a guy that knows his worth, you know? Very godly thing to know your worth. Number three, the closing. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, uh, they're my fellow laborers. You can listen to last week's message if you want to know more about those names. But Mark is an example of somebody that Paul reconciled with, right? Epaphras, he was the, the presumably the church was, uh, you know, he was a member of the church over in Colossae as well. So, so, by the way, this letter, Colossians and Ephesians, were all written at the same time while Paul was in that same imprisonment. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, just as you've received grace and forgiveness, Philemon, let this grace be with your spirit. Have the spirit of forgiveness. Beautiful letter. Philemon, it's me, Paul. Your runaway slave ended up here getting saved after fleeing to Rome. I want him to stay here with me. He's useful, but I'm sending him back. Receive him as a brother in Christ. Forgive him. If he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. Receive him like you would me. It's a beautiful letter. Now, Maybe you're wondering, why would this be in the Bible? I mean, this is a personal letter between Paul and another person. Like, you know, is it just a good moral story about forgiveness? 
Well, I think there is a moral story about forgiveness in there, but I will tell you, I would venture to say that it's not possible for you to forgive like this until you understand how you've been forgiven in Christ. It's those people that are holding grudges of bitterness today towards people that do not understand what a great debt of sin that they've been forgiven of, right? I have committed tremendous amount of sin, so have you. Um, we all have, right? All have fallen short of glory of the God of the glory of God, right? All of us have. And until we know how great a debt of sin we've been forgiven of, it's hard for us to forgive others. And I think that there's something even beyond the moral point of the story going on in this story, and I'll show you. It's like an analogy of our own salvation. You see, God created Adam and Eve, perfect, in the garden, but they left because of sin. They ran away, as it were. And in running away through their disobedience, they denied the one who made them his rights over their life. Right? You see the parallel? There are two ways that people run from God, primarily. One is by going and taking all the resources he's given you, the breath in your lungs, the beating heart, the flesh, the life that he's given you, stealing that and going and trying to define life on your own terms. Well, you know, there's a God, whatever, I don't care. Here's what life's about to me. It's about video games, having sex, doing drugs and partying and, you know, making money and playing golf, you know. That's what life's about and so I'm gonna do it, right? So what I've done effectively then is I've stolen that which belongs to God, this, I've stolen it from him and I've went off and I've tried to go and live my own life and I've ended up in bondage, right? That's one way that people run from God. Here's another way that people run from God that you might not be familiar with. They go to church and they think that by going to church and by reading the Bible and by giving money and by following the rules and by doing all the good little stuff, they think that they're buying their way into heaven. That's another way to run from God, isn't it? Who's your God in that scenario? You are. It's all about you. It's all about the things you're doing. Why are you going to heaven tonight? Well, because I read the Bible. I go to church. I pray. I give money. I do all these things. Well, I've earned my way in there through my good deeds. You know, I give my body to the poor. I do all these good. There's two ways to run from God. One's by being bad and the other one's by being good. Does that make sense? Do you get, do you understand that? Which one do you fall in naturally? You know, because I mean, you fall into one or the other most times, you know. So like Philemon, we've, or Onesimus, we've all run from God through sin, either by being good, by trying to earn our way to heaven with our good behaviors, or by defining life on our own terms. So we've all run away. But we end up in this sad position then. A slave in Rome that ran away gets no asylum. It's death penalty. There were 50% of the population were slaves. So you can imagine when they would run away, they would deal with them harshly because what if you had this huge 50% of the Roman Empire revolt, right? So they got dealt with harshly. And the very same thing is true. When you turn from God by breaking his commandments, there is no asylum in the law of God. You don't find it in the Ten Commandments. The Bible says, the soul that sins shall surely die. That's it. You break God's laws, you die eternally. There's no asylum. But we run into somebody 
that extends grace and mercy and says, even though you deserve death, I'm willing to put that all on my account. And that's exactly what you see right here. Verse 17 and 18. If he owes you anything, put it on me. Now, that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done. We have broken God the Father's laws, and we owe him tremendously for this huge debt of sin. But Jesus says, go ahead and put that on my account. And he goes to the cross, and as he dies, he pays the penalty that you deserve for your sin. Put it on my account. It goes further. A lot of people think of Jesus as, you know, the only thing about Jesus is he forgives my sins. That's true, he does, but he does something else. You also receive his righteousness. Just like Paul said, receive him as you would receive me. Imagine Philemon thinking about Paul. Man, Paul, I came to the Lord through him. He's totally righteous. Dude, just, just, he's, he, he wants me to see this runaway crook with the same track record as him? Yeah, that's the gospel. Not only is the debt of sin put on his account, but he also gets his righteous track record. Whoa, are you kidding? It's two things, a negative and a positive. Takes away the penalty of sin, positively gives me the righteous standing of Christ. Both those things happen in salvation. In fact, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Oh my goodness. This is such good news. This letter is so beautiful. This letter highlights the doctrine of what, they, what the theologians call imputation. That Christ's perfect record is imputed to my record. It's given to my record. And my evil, bad record is given to him on the cross. It's called the doctrine of imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, and it's highlighting exactly what I'm talking about, where it says, for he made him. This is God the Father. This is God the Son. For God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wait a minute. I've got this terrible, bad, sinful record, and you're willing to exchange it with me? That's the gospel. Through faith, through trust, God the Father is now willing to see me with the righteousness that Christ has earned through his perfect sinless life. Man, that's beautiful. I remember the day that that hit my heart. Because, you know, I thought Christians were talking about, you know, I thought they became sinless once they got saved. I was like, all these people get cleaned up and here I'm so evil inside still. What does this mean that God like does this stuff and he forgives? What does that mean? It's he chooses to see me with Jesus' record. You say, Adam, you're not as righteous as Jesus. Oh, I know. Good grief. Should see what's gone in, on in my head today. Seriously. 
right? But God the Father chooses to see me with the righteousness of God in Christ. It's, it's, like I have a, it's like I have something wrapping around me that when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see me. He doesn't see my guilt and my shame and all the mistakes that I've made and all the mistakes I continue to make. He doesn't see all my failures. He doesn't see all the things that used to keep me up at night contemplating suicide. He doesn't see those things anymore. He sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. If, I, if he owes you anything, put it on my account. You can have that. You just trust. You just trust that God is who he says he is. You just trust that. And you let him win your heart. And you believe in that. And that will happen. You say, it doesn't feel like it. I know sometimes it doesn't. That's why we walk by faith, not by sight. That's why we believe, even though it doesn't always feel like it. Right? But I need to believe that what Jesus did on the cross was he took my penalty for my sin. And then by faith in him, my sin is gone. And God sees me as righteous. Both those two things. Receive him back as you would even receive me. That's a beautiful thing. As we go here to the table today, when you think about Christ's body and his blood being shed, I hope this has given you another dimension to that today. It's not just that Jesus forgave your sins, which is tremendous. Wouldn't that be enough? But it's also that he's given his life so his perfect record is your perfect record. So when you look at the bread, you think of that. This is, he says, this is my body given for you. This is my life. This is the life that he lived. He did it right. And now you get to reap the benefits of him doing it right. He did it perfectly. And because he did, God sees you the same way. Oh my gosh. So look at the bread and think of that. And look at the juice and think of that's the sin being forgiven. His blood was shed for the remission of sins. And both of those things together. So, Jeff, would you be a, a gentleman and, and hand out the uh, communion elements? And would somebody want to help him? Somebody could take the bread. Jenny, would you? Yeah, he could take the, you know, one or the other. See, the Bible never tells us to just do some moral thing without giving us the power to do it. We could come at this letter and say, you know what? You need to be like Philemon and you need to be forgiving. But that's not the biggest thing going on here. The biggest thing going on here is how Jesus forgave you. Now that you know that, that should be the motive of how you forgive others. Thank you. When a Christian is exhorted to be forgiving, it's in light of how you have been forgiven. How could I ever hold a grudge when God doesn't hold a grudge towards me? How could I ever stick it to you when God didn't stick it to me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word here today. And God, I just trust you've spoken and bless this little letter to our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.